<laughs> and so it begins. Uh, yes, I wish I could whistle as well as you could. It's, I've never been able to whistle. I like whistling a lot. Okay. So. <laughs> Welcome to Film is Lit, the full spoilers podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or television adaptation. My name is Danny, he, him. I'm the self-appointed film expert. And my name is Laura, she, her, and I'm the self-appointed lit expert. And today on the pod, just in time for Thanksgiving... A little late. <laughs> <laughs> We're covering fantastic Mr. Fox, the family favorite. Finally! And actually the Laura Sealing Gaylord favorite also. This has been in my top 10 pretty much since I saw it in 2009, because I'm pretty sure I saw it when it came out. And the first time I saw it was a few years ago when you showed it to We're me. We're finally coming up against a movie that I showed you. I don't even know if we've covered a movie like that yet. Rare. Rare on this Very podcast. Rare. If this is your first time listening, Laura and I are a real-life married couple. But yeah, this is a fun one because people tend to love... Well, first off, people our age really love Wes Anderson. And this is probably, next to Grand Budapest, his most well-loved film. Mm. At least in like the Twitter community. Like mm. the millennial you know, hipster community this movie really thrives and it's also just a quintessential autumnal movie yeah i i pushed to cover this before thanksgiving because it's definitely a thanksgiving movie we obviously missed it by a little bit missed it by a shave but um i still think it's a very end of year fall like you said autumnal movie in fact i made a little hot toddy to match Bean's cider obsession. And mm. honestly, I have to say, it's pretty delicious. Yeah. I'm drinking it out of a cup that my friend Jesse made for me. Oh, It's cool. ceramic, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jesse. Yeah, I love uh, hot apple cider. Oh, it's really good. That. And with a little yeah. whiskey in there. Mm. Exactly. Amen yeah. to that. Yeah, so let's dive into it. The autumnal favorite. Just from the color palette to the feeling, to the setting, the, the movie takes place in fall, mm -hmm. ostensibly somewhere in England, yeah, in the English countryside, which is so Wes Anderson, too. Yeah. Like, he's never <laughs> just made a movie. That, well, his first movies were in America, but then he very quickly switched to overseas. This is such an interesting merge of American and English culture, though, too. Yeah. Because, obviously, so it's based on Roald Dahl's book, Fantastic which, Mr. Fox. Which came out? In 1970. And that book is very English. I think Roald Dahl is one of those writers, very much like Ein Fleming, mm -hmm. Ian Fleming, where they're just like quintessential English men. Like yeah. white... British like, chaps. British chaps. And in fact, they did know each other and worked together. Whoa. Ian Fleming and Roald Dahl. Whoa. Um, I didn't know that. Cool. It's true. Uh, Roald Dahl developed the storyline for the James Bond movie, You Only Live Twice. And then he also adapted Ian Fleming's children's story, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which is one of the scariest children's movies mm -hmm. I ever experienced as a child. <laughs> yeah, so they did know each other. They did work together. So it's kind of interesting to think about that nice. crossover. Cool. And the movie came out on November 13th of 2009. Mm -hmm. We were sophomores in high school yeah wow and i was and, definitely going through like my my indie angsty phase oh, so this was really right up my alley yeah sophomore year is that time um, yeah and luckily it this movie stuck with me though oh yeah I'm, I'm not embarrassed to say that i claimed that this is my favorite movie probably back then <laughs> as well yeah. and it was adapted by wes anderson himself and noah bomback who the writer director who directed marriage story a few years ago oh. the pretty incredible movie Nice. We did like that movie. Oh, yeah. It was I liked good. it a lot. Yeah. yeah. Is that for best picture and actor and actress and all that mm -hmm. stuff? And oh, Laura Dern won for that. But yeah, so, and uh, Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach are friends. Wes Anderson is also friends with the Coppola family. A lot of times, Roman Coppola, son of Francis Ford Coppola, is uh, involved in his movies in some way. So. You know, another fun fact that we found out when I was, when we were watching this together, is that the character of Christofferson was played by Wes Anderson's brother, Eric. Yeah. And I didn't even know he had a brother, but he's in a lot of 
actually exclusively in Wes Anderson's movies. Mm -hmm. He doesn't act outside of that, which I think is kind of fun. Right. Yeah. So the premise of the book and the movie, again, full spoilers podcast, although you've probably seen the movie. An urbane fox cannot resist returning to his farm raiding ways and then must help his community survive the farmer's retaliation. Mm. All right, so we already touched upon it a little bit, but let's get to our personal journeys with the source material and the film. Sure. Well, this is actually one of the Roald Dahl books that I did not read as a kid. Mm -hmm. I read things like Matilda, James and the Giant Peach, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, as well as The Glass Elevator, which is the sequel to that book. Mm. But I was never introduced to this one. I think it's a little bit more of a children's story than a YA novel. Do you agree? For sure. But that's not to say that this isn't a beautiful book. I think it's really, really lovely. And even reading it now, it's interesting to see how the morality is adapted very differently for the movie. Mm -hmm. Because it's a pretty one-to-one adaptation if you think of kind of the middle of the movie it is basically the book mm-hmm. but in terms of what we learn from the movie i actually think it's a deeper message yes which i really liked i i thought it was really interesting to read this after i had gained so much after i mean i've seen this movie countless times this is one of my like warm fuzzy movies that i kind of watch when i need a little Mm -hmm. little hug from the screen another reason that i feel really connected to this movie is because of the score i feel like i was really starting to get into movie scores about this time in my life when we were sophomores Mm -hmm. and this is one i swear to god if i had this on vinyl it would be scratched played out completely because it's so good i listen to this all the time. I know like all the ticks, all of the beats in this. And not only that, I also know all of like the pop music that they used in here. I guess I should mention that Alexander Desplat. Yeah. I never know how to to pronounce his name, but he rocked this score. It's exactly what you would want to hear from a fall autumnal movie. Yeah. Oh, just beautiful. Right. Yeah. The two-time Oscar-winning composer. Alexander Desplat. He, he doesn't stumble very often. No. Like, he really has a lot of bangers. I would definitely put him up there as like a, like, I guess maybe not a John Williams because he doesn't have like iconic movements. But mm-hmm. at the same time, if I hear this anywhere, I know exactly where it came from. Yeah. It's interesting to, to see how he adapts himself to different directors because he works with a lot of yeah. directors. Absolutely, yeah. He won. He's Wes Anderson's guy, so he won an Oscar mm-hmm. for the Grand Budapest Hotel. That's another um, one. And then he also won for The Shape of Water, so he works with Guillermo del Toro a lot as well. But yeah. He also composed a couple of the Harry Potter movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Scores. Yeah, I bet you record shops upcharge on this vinyl because everyone our age wants it. Well, fun fact, actually, it's not on vinyl. Oh. I actually, this is, again, going back to 2009, think back. This is one (laughs) score that I actually torrented (laughs) Mm -hmm. when I was a kid because I, like, didn't have money really to spend on music. But I was, like, all over the LimeWire, the MP3, or the, you know, YouTube to MP3 sort of things. I ripped all this music from the internet, so sorry. <laughs> yeah. But I would love to have this on vinyl, and it's just not out there, unfortunately. Grand Budapest is. Yeah, that's nuts that it's a, they would the studio oh, would rake in up. the cash. I do wonder though if it's because of a lot of the pop music, like from the Beach Boys. Mm-hmm. Like maybe they can't license that, but I don't see why they can't just sell the score because that's what a lot yeah, of people yeah. they do. Like sometimes they release soundtracks that are like the full soundtrack and then just the score. So I don't know. Um, I guess the last thing I wanted to say was that I actually, actually, I guess you were with me, but we got to see models of Mr. and Mrs. Fox puppets at the Academy Museum when we went the first time. Right. And that was super special to me because, again, like, this has always been one of my favorite movies. So to see their little details was really cool. Yeah, that that was neat. The yeah. Academy Museum is in uh, Hollywood, California. I, yeah. If you're ever out in the area, listeners, this is like a go-to place. They have such awesome stuff. And it's also super educational. Yeah. They really dig into, like, racism, misogyny that's, like, baked into Hollywood culture. It's a really great 
place to visit yeah it's like one of the newest attractions in la and honestly Um, it's not that big it's it's a really nice museum to go to and take like an afternoon unlike something like right next door oh and yeah so it is along miracle mile which in los angeles is a huge draw just because of the amount of museums and like event spaces in one spot so Mm -hmm. highly recommend they also have a great gift shop i'm a huge fan of a good gift shop yeah museums live and die off their gift shop no it's true (laughs) um and they also do special events like screenings you can become a member they recorded some of the academy awards there last year um actually maybe the last couple years i feel like they're always there hanging out so anyway that's my story i think oh and also just to note there is a roll doll character postage stamp set i just have to bring that up fantastic mr fox is on one of those nice because we've talked about stamps now a couple times like iconic at this at this point anyway the fox and then your stamp collection that's true my stamp collection is iconic oh my god this podcast is sponsored by stamps.com stamps.com get your um yeah so my journey i got into films pretty hardcore my freshman year of high school as i've said before in this podcast and wes anderson is a tricky filmmaker because i'm hot and cold on a lot of his films Mm. the life aquatic with steve zizu is (laughs) one of my one of our favorites oh it's so funny Uh, those dolphins (laughs) yeah like an incredibly funny and but also at the same time depressing film that's kind of wes anderson's mo he yeah he has deadpan humor that's funny in a non-obvious way that it, it very intellectual and sometimes that part of him can feel a little bit annoying or cold i love life aquatic grand budapest is oh great my gosh, yeah. fantastic mr fox is great but something like royal tenenbaums or isle of dogs or darjeeling limited leave me a little cold i mean they're about the same things as the as his other movies but I don't know. I, I just go back and forth. He either has masterpieces in my... Oh, The French Dispatch. We were like... That was oh, super off for us. And not not our thing. Yeah, we're in the minority for that. But we watched that and we're like, what is... This is just not... It just felt like nothing to us. Yeah. That being said, so Fantastic Mr. Fox was a film that passed by in high school. I wanted to see it, but I didn't get around to it. As you stated, didn't have any money. <laughs> and so the money that I could round up went to other films, probably like Inception. Inception. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do I know you? <laughs> it's funny that you immediately knew that. <laughs> well, 2009, baby. Yeah. You turned me into a film, bro. <laughs> and I knew of its hipster status. And because of that, maybe a little resentment grew and I didn't watch it because it was just so popular among mm. our groups. I also don't watch or read kids' material. Yeah. Because I'm not a kid anymore. <laughs> um, I just can't relate. But what I didn't know about this movie is that it is extremely adult. Probably one yes. of the more mature and dark kids movies I've like ever seen. Yeah. Like they're dealing with foxes and other wild animals killing chickens. But also humans going after these uh wild animals with guns and mm-hmm. bombs and they're like they're they're out for blood and you showed it to me two years ago i really loved it and knew that we had to cover it for this podcast we've finally gotten here i read the book in preparation for this episode i think i'm just comparing it to the movie but also it, it just it's it's a cute book but in terms of diving into the themes of like midlife crisis, yeah. of unrequited love, of feeling like an outsider, of trying to live up to expectations, of not letting go of your fun past. This movie does such a better job of exploring those themes while remaining extremely entertaining, incredibly funny, and only 84 minutes. I mean, can you beat that? Way funnier than the book. Yeah. I don't really think that there's a lot of humor in the book, but I certainly understand where this would have been intriguing for Wes Anderson because yeah. we've talked about his themes in past films before. He is really interested in dysfunctional family relationships. Yeah. And so the thing that I find really interesting about the book Fantastic Mr. Fox is that I think... Roald Dahl is really pushing the hero aspect. Mm. And while we see that Mr. Fox is flawed in a couple of scenes, he's never really pushed to reconcile the fact that like he's kind of not a hero. Yeah. And I, I don't think that 
the readers are supposed to understand that. I, I still think it's almost like Roald Dahl's, like, I don't want to go as far as to say, like, toxic masculinity understanding of, like, a hero, but it's certainly not a nuanced read of an anti-hero. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it has that weight to it. Yeah. So, and, and so here's an example. <laughs> when Mrs. Fox, because she doesn't get a first name in the book, she does in the movie, which I like, where Mrs. Fox compliments... Mr. Fox. And instead of thanking her or returning the compliment at least, he says he loved her more than ever when she said things like that. Mm. Like that to me doesn't feel like an even partnership. But again, it's not it's not a nuanced read about how that's not an even partnership in a marriage. Mm -hmm. It's more of just like, yeah, Mr. Fox has the right to say things like that because he is fantastic Mr. Fox. Whereas I love how the movie digs into the fact that he's really unappreciative of his wife and extremely hard on his son and never really thanks them or or his friends for being supportive. He really sees... In fact, the movie opens up with him listening to a Disney song from 1955 about Davy Crockett, which I think like it leans into this whole persona that I think he thinks of himself as having. Mm-hmm. He thinks of himself as this like legendary wild animal. But by the end, he's gone through this emotional arc where he needs to take a step back and say, I am a wild animal and I have these instincts. And also, I need to be a supportive partner and loving father and uncle and friend. Right. And I need to change. Like things need to change for that to be a healthier relationship. I just love that. I think that's a beautiful way of adding depth to this interesting story. Yes. Source material. Whereas in the book, Mrs. Fox is unrelentingly supportive to the point where right. <laughs> I wouldn't say she is much of a character no. at all. I think she's totally underwritten. Um, she doesn't even get a first name. <laughs> she just gets Mrs. Fox. They make the choice to have my friend Meryl Streep. <laughs> I had to say <laughs> that's right. I've worked with her in the past. No big deal. They make the choice to flesh her character out in addition to mr fox because they make her have the same past as mr fox like they were both wild and they they stole from farms and had debaucherous uh, behavior but unlike mr fox she matured when faced with the prospect of parenthood right the first scene opens up with them being trapped And if her saying, we can't do this anymore, I'm pregnant. Mm -hmm. And it's a couple who goes two different ways. Mr. Fox clearly holds on to his past. Again, tapping into that midlife crisis theme of him wanting to return to his younger days of stealing and thievery. Whereas the opposite happens for Mrs. Fox. She matures and decides to raise her family. This, This leads us to the next change. Whereas in the movie, there's just one child, Ash. Whereas in the book, the foxes have four children who are unnamed. Yeah, just kind of nobody. If anything, it's just a family to protect, kind of. Mm -hmm. But in this, I love that they made Ash an only child. Mm -hmm. Because it brings out the harshness of Mr. Fox so much more mm-hmm. on this child that like clearly doesn't fit in and also doesn't live up to his father's reputation mm-hmm. back in school and you know back in his like wilder days I think it just comes out so much more and it's like it's it, it feels so much more personal yeah. when Mr. Fox's dysfunctional parenting style um comes out at Ash it's like it's heartbreaking like, yeah he has no one else to take refuge with except for his mom, but he's going through that time in life where he doesn't want to talk to his parents at all because they suck. And yeah. then enter his cousin, Christofferson, who his father is obsessed with. And it just, it's like, it's heartbreaking. Right. I think we all can relate to the feeling of feeling like an outsider, of not living up to someone else, of maybe of having a crush on someone and that crush likes your rival or yeah. someone different. Mm-hmm. It's a very universal theme. I mean, I remember even growing up, I have two older brothers. I'm not an only child, but my two older brothers were like star students and athletes mm-hmm. at the same time. And I'm not blaming them. I'm, that's just how it was. And I had this intense pressure that was really hard to cope with. And I related to Ash a lot in the scenes, especially what's the game that they play? Whack Bat. Whack Bat, yeah. <laughs> Hilarious. Oh, yeah. So I funny. related to him looking upon the statue of his 
dad of years of him winning awards and then ash is not doesn't have the same level of athletic ability and so he anger manifests and he comes across as as rather mean and, and cold when that's not really his true uh, personality this is a complete departure from the book we should say too yeah this is not really delved into this whole comparison thing his cousin christopherson absolutely not a character in the book yeah and whack bat is obviously a beautifully <laughs> complex creation of the movie yeah and it also includes a great cameo by owen wilson who plays his coach yeah and he's so funny he pulls ash out to put christopherson in who's never played this game and you know the first time he even swings a bat he blows everyone away and one of our favorite lines that came out of that was it's such a complex game and then he does everything correctly and then he raises his hand after the play is over and he goes and divide that by nine please <laughs> like yeah. he completely gets the game it's it's a great moment but yeah uh owen wilson obviously is a wes anderson regular regular yes yeah they were roommates in oh i don't college. think i knew that yep That's emerson fun. nice Yep, right across, Boston. yeah, down the street from Boston University, my alma mater, Go Terriers. <laughs> Go Terriers. I guess we should also mention that this movie was fully stop motion. Yeah. There's only one scene that used some CGI. I think some of the backgrounds also may have been CGI in certain shots, mm -hmm. but for the most part, I would say like 98% full stop motion and this is Wes Anderson's first sort of foray into children's stories and also animation. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about this before, about how much more you can do with animation than live action or the different things that you can do mm -hmm. in both mediums. But I just love that they stuck to an animation format, but also that's extremely different from the original illustrations. Yeah. I wanted to talk about the illustrations in the book a little bit because it's actually interesting. The style that everyone is very familiar with from Roald Dahl, mm -hmm. he had an illustrator that he worked with almost his whole life or almost his whole career named Quentin Blake. However, the thing that I thought was very interesting was that the storyboards that they used to develop the movie are actually quite a bit more like the original, original illustrations. When the first edition of the book was published by Donald Chafin, <laughs> he had more of a naturalistic way mm -hmm. of illustrating, whereas I think Quentin Blake has almost an interpretive style, like kind of frenetic yeah. style of illustrating, which really highlights Roald Dahl's kind of quirky way of writing. So mm -hmm. I, I like that he finally met up with an illustrator for the rest of his career. However, I, I just love how naturalistic and realistic they went for the movie. Yeah. Right? You could even compare this movie to another Roald Dahl adaptation, James and the Giant Peach, which yeah. I think came out in the 90s that I loved. I loved that movie. It has a very Hen Henry Selleck flavor. Yeah. It's also stop motion animation. Right. But it's more of that kind of interpretive animation right yeah and it's shot at a lower frame rate so normal normal movies are shot at the more fluid 24 frames mm -hmm. a second where this is shot at half that 12 frames mm. a second so you can the gaps between movements are more pronounced it draws attention to the fact that it is stop motion but the actual art direction itself like the puppets and how the movie looks is more naturalistic it's yeah. not it's not going for realism so to speak but the mannerisms feel very real yeah and what i love about that is another layer that wes anderson adds to the narrative with this movie is the juxtaposition between this very wild side of the animals like a lot of times if they get angry they kind of spar and they'll go like <laughs> <laughs> and when they eat it's so funny like they don't just like take a fork and a knife they pause for a minute and then they go <laughs> it's so funny you have that and also mr fox's drive that like wild animal drive within him to keep mm -hmm. killing chickens and what was the other the other foul 
that they keep saying right. like, whatever the hell that is yeah ducks or something um, yeah oh i wish i could remember what it is but then you also have this very humanistic read of these animals because Roald Dahl did anthropomorphize these mm-hmm. characters and so they're wearing cute little things like coats and they live in a house like a human sort of house not just a little hole stuff like that and I love that there's this angle of these two things can live within one being clearly because I, I don't think that we're supposed to read Mr. Fox as like a horrible person right we're, we're supposed to see him feeling these tugs of both of his personalities and the reason that he can't really make them he can't express them in a healthy way is because he's like not able to balance these two poles within right. himself which couldn't be more of a human yeah. feeling. Yeah, exactly. And I, I just love that they use that idea of these wild animals. Like, yeah, like yeah. what a perfect vessel to have that dichotomy of like wild animal, literally wild animal, but also, you know, you're a father figure and you want to care for your family, right. and defend your family, provide for your family, stuff like that. I just right. think that like, it's such a brilliant way of bringing those two things into clash. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. adulthood, baby. Am I right? We <laughs> well, want to yeah. party all night. And and it's so, it's so easily <laughs> allows you to layer those things in like yeah. that feeling of the midlife crisis. Uh-huh. You know, he even says something like I'm seven human years old old my dad died at seven and a half like i don't want the last few years of my life to just be living in a hole stuff like that like there's also this push of i am a wild animal the the reality is we're not going to live to a hundred years old or something Mm -hmm. how do i enjoy the rest of my life the way i want to Mm -hmm. i just love that it's such it's such an organic way of questioning all of these things and this leads us nicely to the next big difference so speaking of wes anderson humanizing the wild animals in the book there's no real mention of the animals having professions yeah which i i love that the movie does that like fully creates a little a little society um underground so mr fox he used to be a thief but now is writing for the newspaper which apparently no one reads he's kind of it's like a failing newspaper yeah penny saver yeah yeah the Badger, played by Bill Murray. Another Wes Anderson staple. Regular. Oh, yeah, staple. staple. Oh, Rushmore. Yeah, I should better. say I love Rushmore. That's mm. like, I think, where their collaboration began. But he's I in almost all of his movies. Badger is his lawyer and also gives him advice of not to, you know, buy the, the new tree. But, of course, Fox's ambitions, they, <laughs> they're, they're out. I hear your concern, and I'll respectfully do the exact opposite of yeah. that, basically. You cussing me? You cussing me? You cussing with me? Don't you cuss at me. <laughs> you son of a cuss. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Son of a cuss. Oh yeah, they're coaches, teachers, all sorts of... Mrs. Fox is an aspiring artist. Right. She's so much better fleshed out in this. I love that we even meet her in a pair of pants and a nice blouse instead of just, you know, the, the motherly, matronly dress that she has on in the book the whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that that's another big diversion, which I think just makes it funnier. Also, the outfits, especially Mr. Fox, he is modeled exactly after the director himself. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure Wes Anderson wears that kind of burgundy, <laughs> orange, corduroy suit. I think he lives in it. I don't think he ever takes it off. (laughs) You can Google now, listeners. Pull over and and Google on your phone Wes Anderson. And he's he's pretty much wearing what Mr. Fox wears Mm -hmm. in this movie. Uh, Yeah, he has a very 70s English slash French uh, new wave vibe Mm -hmm. to him. Mm -hmm. And all his movies look like this. To the point where it's kind of becoming a parody at this point, which is why we didn't like the French Dispatch, because it's almost like every single Wes Anderson cliche and staple you could think of is just jammed in there. And And it wasn't supposed to be a parody. It's just too (laughs) much. The French Dispatch, I know people love it, but it's just way too much Wes Anderson for us. Is that that really a hot take? Yeah. (sighs) I don't know. Don't go on Letterboxd. Fans fans of the French Dispatch... Talk to me in 10 years and tell me that movie's still good. I don't know. I, I think I yeah. really do think that it was just like, oh, it, it's been so right. long since he's come out with a movie and he had this absolute stellar cast. Like we watched Bones and all. Obviously, Timothy Chalamet is like the hot item. Yeah. And 
Jesus Christ, everybody and their mom was in that film. So yeah. I think there was just a lot of hype that I, I don't see it. I yeah. don't see it in them. I think that actually compared to this, there's just an absolute dearth of heart and message. Mm-hmm. And, and I agree with you to a certain extent about Isle of Dogs. I liked it better than you did, but it certainly doesn't hold a candle to any of his other yeah. ones that I think are really like message heavy didactic (laughs) yeah or i will say the movie in terms of the cast it still is star-studded i mean you have george clooney who at the time he was the guy 2009 like he had just won an oscar for syriana he was on top of the world he was in this movie in 2009 and also up in the air which were which was like an incredible performance and movie cannot wait cannot wait to talk about that we're gonna cover it later this season and then meryl streep who is i mean is meryl streep yeah probably the most highly regarded actor next to down day lewis probably but what i liked is that they have a few uh non-famous people in the voice cast as well so eric chase anderson as you stated he played christopherson but also kylie the opossum oh you're obsessed with this little yeah. opossum. <laughs> so played by wallace Woldarski, who's not in a lot he's more of a producer than he Mm -hmm. is an actor or a voice actor but something about him this time around so i should say for this podcast this is the second time i've seen the film something about kylie just struck a chord with me (laughs) this time i was laughing at all of his lines especially when towards the end when they approached the dog in the city and has a foaming mouth and ash is like what do you think that is and kylie goes i think he eats soap It's just like his character is so funny because like a real opossum, he'll go into a trance as a defense mechanism for predators. But he just goes into that trance throughout the movie and people are like, are you okay? Not if you can hear me. And just the, <laughs> the moves that he does. Yeah. It's very Wes Anderson, but extremely funny. So I'm a fan of Kylie. I was a huge fan of, well, this is going back into the famous category, but Willem Dafoe. As the as rat. rat. Oh my gosh. Is William Dafoe, I mean, I know I've said Ed Harris is my favorite actor, but William Dafoe is like, is right there. He's amazing in everything he's been in, voice acting or not. Not that you asked, but my favorite actor right now is Michael Stuhlbarg. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Speaking <laughs> of bones Willem, and all. Willem Dafoe is right up there as well. Wes Anderson himself plays the real estate agent, the weasel. The weasel. In the beginning so of the funny. movie. Very funny. Another person that was pretty top billed just because by 2009, not all the Harry Potter movies were out. Michael Gambon actually plays Bean, the smartest of the three villains. And as much as he's hashtag not my Dumbledore, I love how he plays. Did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? (laughs) Did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? He's just so, he's just so sly. His voice is so sly as Perfectly cast. Bean. Yeah. I think uh, the problem with animated films these days is they're just trying to cast the hottest actors around in order for a box office results in reference to Chris Pratt being cast as Mario. God. But this, I think with Wes Anderson, yes, he works with all his friends in, in every movie. But I feel like this is a case where even though he's working with his buddies, everyone was perfectly cast. So I have two things to say about this. The first thing is that, you know, what other animated series does that but smashes it is Big Mouth. They have so many big name people. In fact, they're so big that they make people who aren't that famous even more famous because they do it so well. The other thing I'm going to say about that is that unfortunately it does mean that there is literally zero diversity in this film. There are literally no people who are not white (laughs) voicing characters in this. And I think because he tends to cast his friends, that tends to be a consistent criticism. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, like, I'll point to the French Dispatch. I don't think it got much better. (laughs) It it, it doesn't seem to be getting any more diverse. Um, And I think, I don't know, I think that the film suffers a little bit for that. Interesting. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, that's... I didn't consider that. Thanks for bringing that to my attention. His films certainly have been criticized for that very thing. 
It's pretty obvious when you look at the IMDb page for the cast. Yeah, so we can acknowledge that. So what what are some other differences here that we can talk about? I guess another difference is that in the book, the animals do have some interactions with the humans. So it's pretty clear that they can at least understand each other. I'm not quite sure how they communicate, but they can definitely understand each other to a certain extent. But in the movie, I think it's really smart to keep them completely separate. Well, okay, they interact once. There's that the note, <laughs> funny so they... <laughs> ransom note. <laughs> That, which is a great, a great joke. It's such a good run. I really love how Wes Anderson can plant a joke early mm-hmm. and then you don't get the payoff for a little while, but you definitely, it lands. It always lands. So yeah, the three farmers who are obviously hunting the thieving animals write a ransom note because they end up being able to capture Christofferson. Mm-hmm. And it comes as a like magazine cutout mm-hmm. letters. And I think Kylie says, why did they send it like a ransom note? Ransom note? Like we know who they are. <laughs> and they signed it. And they it. signed it. <laughs> and then the, the funny thing though too is that... <laughs> Mr. Fox sends another note back and then the three farmers are looking at it and they're like, why did they write it as a ransom note with the cutout letters for magazines? And he's like, well, I guess we did that. So so silly. But I think that's kind of smart because then you don't have to run up against the whole like, how do they talk to each other? How would they understand each other? I think it also just keeps this like separation of the wild animals that are trying to be civilized and the men who are clearly just go for broke mean. (laughs) And I honestly, this is something I love about Roald Dahl. He has incredible villains. His villains are so mean. Like, think about Matilda. Mm-hmm. Think about James and the Giant Peach. Think about all these really dark characters. And these three farmers, while in some ways are copy and paste characters, mm-hmm. really don't need three. But the way that he describes them are so... Like, there's a little ditty that goes with it, too, that Alexandra Desplat perfectly put to music. I think this is where Roald Dahl's kind of explicit, like, villainization, I guess, of things like guns come in because they are definitely described as these, like, gross, Mm -hmm. gluttonous men who aren't necessarily defending their land because they need it, but because they want to make money with things that they produce on their land. And interestingly enough too, I just read Animal Farm and it's really interesting to sort of see that capitalism slash communism theme kind of come in and out of this too. And like the way that the animals Mm -hmm. perceive humans and how humans perceive animals. Yeah. But anyway, the three farmers and the animals never really communicate directly unless it's through the written word Mm -hmm. but their written word is the same so there's that connection of like they can clearly the movie is already so fantastical that it would be it wouldn't make sense to establish the thread that the humans can't understand them because you know the wild animals are already dressed like humans and they walk upright yeah right that's another thing about animal farm that i noticed they're definitely very humanized yeah speaking of the trigger happy humans the biggest diversion between the book and the novel are the endpoints. So the book ends at the feast, mm-hmm. which is after the wild animals led by Fox have raided all three of the farms while the farmers left their farms unoccupied because they were busy trying to blow up the <laughs> tree hole. The book, I think, rather abruptly and out of theme ends with Fox giving the speech of like, okay, we now have a plan. We can get food whenever we want and problem solved. Mm -hmm. And then Mrs. Fox is like, you're fantastic. And yay, happy ending. To read that after seeing the movie a few times feels so off and Mm -hmm. wrong Mm -hmm. because that's the end of the second act in the movie, Mm -hmm. which is when in storytelling, the end of the second act is when their characters are at their low point. Mm -hmm. And because... The wild animals raid all the farms. That only makes the farmers react more severely Mm -hmm. by flushing the sewer system out with the uh, spiked apple cider. (laughs) (laughs) So I I feel like it's not like irresponsible for Roald Dahl to end the, the book there, but it just doesn't feel right. Like, their problems aren't solved. Why would the farmers just give up then? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, the other thing, too, is after, like you said, I think you said it really well, when you perceive the end of the novel as the character's lowest points, you also really highlight the fact that Mr. Fox 
has not changed. And in fact, all of the animals around him are following his basic instinct again. Mm -hmm. And that's not where we see the upswing for all the animals in Mr. Fox by the end. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I really want to lean into because his character is so much more complex in the film. One of the, one of the funniest moments that his narcissism comes out is actually at the feast they're just about to start and mm -hmm. badger stands up and he's starting to make this heartfelt speech like thank you so much for everybody for coming together and putting this meal together we don't have a lot but you know what we have is yours it's shared this whole thing and basically like he doesn't even get a full sentence out when when mr fox cuts him off yeah. <laughs> he's basically like uh yeah, yeah 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 okay like now it's my turn to make the speech actually in the book it's even worse he actually interrupts badger and then fucking burps badger even at one point he says i love you and he goes thank you <laughs> just <laughs> what it talks like exactly so again like how can that be the end of the story right for mr fox like there's been no like you said there's not even a natural story downbeat to that yeah, exactly and in the movie Mrs. Fox even has the awareness because she's smart to know that an act as brash yeah. and as severe as what Mr. Fox has just done, the farmers are not going to give up. They're going to come even harder now. Right. And now the whole community is even in more danger. Yeah. And you know what? This is the thing too. Everybody's in this situation because Mr. Fox couldn't stop himself from mm -hmm. being irresponsible. They're in danger of dying, which is why this is so crazy that this is a kid's movie. Yeah. Like all the all our main characters are in jeopardy of being horrendously murdered. And the other thing too that's funny in both the book and the movie, they also are killing other animals. Yes. Like Mr. Fox snaps the necks of a bunch of chickens and ducks. Yeah. And it's funny too, like after reading Animal Farm, one of the original commandments was like animals don't harm animals. Animals don't kill animals. So I, I think it's kind of funny that like even that is dark. Like even yeah. the animals don't have a line. Mm -hmm. They're just following their most basic instincts. And the only reason that like the foxes and the badgers get along is because they're not necessarily predators of You're each right. other but what i love we can kind of come to like the end of mr fox's arc because through having his son and sort of being able to understand what his wife has been trying to say the whole time is like our son is different and that's a good thing we come to the end of mr fox's arc and also the movie when he realizes the final act is the go for broke plan mm -hmm. and he realizes instead of doing everything himself and maybe sometimes taking advantage of Kylie's lack of a spine yeah. <laughs> and Christopherson's sort of natural wanting to like look up to him. And also there's that power dynamic of like, you know, you're my uncle. So he kind of like wrangles him in as well into these really dangerous situations. He finally in the go for broke plan realizes that he can use everybody's different strengths to overcome this public threat. Right. And he finally has a conversation with Ash where he says, your ability to be fantastic comes from the fact that you're different and you see things in a different way, mm. which is so much better than the book. <laughs> I think we've made it pretty obvious that both of us prefer the movie to the book. Mm -hmm. But it's also funny because I think Fox still has, or Foxy, as Mrs. Felicity Fox calls her <laughs> husband. He's still not all the way there at the end of the movie because even with Kylie, Kylie's like, what's my role in the plan? And he goes, um, buddy, uh, you're just going to be really good at being wherever I need you. Yeah. <laughs> He's not perfect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> by any means. And he also makes a little bit of a narcissistic speech to close the movie too right. in the supermarket. But he's much better than where he started. Exactly. Definitely. Yeah. He hasn't done a complete 180, which again is more human. It's more yeah. real life. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned the go for broke. That's not, that brings up uh, his line. Okay. Suicide mission over. Uh, now it's time for go for broke raid. <laughs> the thing I have never seen a kid's movie where the main character contemplates committing suicide. He does, yeah. He's he's about to give himself up. He even says, like, I'd rather have them kill me and stuff me and put me over their mantle than kill all of you. Yeah. And it's like, oh, shit. And then he, like, goes and turns himself in. Like, right, or he's about to. Yeah, yes. he's about to, yeah. So I... But he has a full intention. Oh, which, exactly. you know, that means that he's grown. I certainly like that because it is a very 
intense part of the movie where you're scared for your main character. But can you imagine bringing like your little kids to this and like having them come? I don't know. I'm not, this is not a knock against the movie. I'm just putting ourselves in this hypothetical situation where we're like, where there are seven year olds or eight year olds in the theater. I think it would be a little much. Again, not it's, a criticism. It's tough. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> maybe we should take this off mic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Different parenting styles. Talk about our hypothetical kids. <laughs> I tend to really gravitate toward the darker side of children's novels and movies. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I've talked about Lemony Snicket. Yeah. I like Harry Potter, but it was, I don't know that it was ever my favorite franchise just because it doesn't have the stakes that I feel like Lemony Snicket and even something like Fantastic Mr. Fox, you know, James and the Giant Peach, his entire family is dead. Matilda, her parents <laughs> are dead. Like these very dark themes to wrestle with. Like, I guess projecting myself as a parent, I would rather have these themes introduced in like an artistic way that might get a conversation going mm. rather than like hearing about them. Like it's like John Mulaney's joke about like parents giving their kids weed. Here you go. Have a little. Yeah. We'd rather you do it at home kind of thing. So I don't know. It's, it's almost like a microdose of being an adult. And right. well, I would say the movie does do that. And then you get to the scene where he's com contemplating suicide. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's one of those things that you'd have to tease out as a parent. The other, the other scene, I think one of the darkest scenes, which is like so heartbreaking, is the death of Rat. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's so sad. It's also a brilliant way of showing the fight. That's like, it's not too scary. Right. Because it's in the dark. But every time they hit the fence, I think it's like an electric Le fence. Electric, yep. They're eliminated in these like very, these kind of... Skeletons. Yeah, skeletons in these It's like very action. John Hughes-esque. Oh, cool. I didn't think about that. Yeah, like planes, trains, automobiles. Gotcha. Or Christmas Vacation. Yeah. I haven't seen that. Yeah. But it's a really fun way of showing a violent fight that yeah. in fact ends in a death. Yeah. Which is not usual for a children's right. vehicle. Definitely. And especially, God, Rat, is, he's so funny. He's such a funny villain because really all he ever wanted was the, the cider that tasted like melted gold. Oh. And it's and like a southern accent for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, he's so desperate that as he's dying, Mr. Fox actually gives him sewer sludge. Yeah. And he's like, ah, melted gold. And then he <laughs> expires. <laughs> yeah. In a wide shot, they put him in the sewer and he floats away. Right. But even that, it's like, respectful, it just, but funny. It's respectful. Right. And it also just highlights the fact that we have high stakes. Like even Mr. Fox, he lost his tail permanently. Yeah. Like which happened in the book, which did happen in the book. But I think it's hilarious that they made the tail the tie. Yes. <laughs> Mr. Bean's which tie. Which is not in the book. <laughs> which is not in the book. But yeah, it's just another way to like deepen the stakes for all of these animals that, yes, while they are intelligent and collected into this little society, they're still very easily the hunted. And that's why they have to yeah. be so clever. That's what makes this movie so great it are the stakes. I mean, that's why animated movies in general aren't usually my jam, but... One of my favorite movies of all time is The Incredibles. Like that is oh, absolutely that is the ultimate stakes. Where not only are they fighting a doomsday device, but Mister Incredible's entire family, mm -hmm. right? Their lives are on the line, and at one point he thinks they're all dead too. So very intense yes. for a kids' yes, movie. That is intense. It's I think analogous to this movie where people's lives are in jeopardy because of one man's brash midlife crisis. Yeah, seriously, um, that's a good way of saying it. Yeah. So it's really, really well done for a Wes Anderson midlife crisis storyline. Again, he's done this storyline a bunch of times and he's batting like 500 for me. For sure. Yeah. I. It's so interesting from what I'm hearing you say, you don't mind an animated approach to stories if they're being treated as like an adult film. Right. I know a few minutes earlier I had that hypothetical situation of parents showing their seven-year-olds the this movie and then coming to the suicide part. But yes, for the most part, I don't watch kids' stuff just because I can't relate. I ain't a kid. Like, I, I know these themes of, like, standing up for yourself. And you know what kids' movies normally do, but it's... But it, it'll be interesting to see, like, what we end up showing our kids because there's a lot of stuff that you've watched 
as a young kid that your brothers introduced you to that you were like way too young in my opinion to watch that's what older brothers are for um but that's the thing like i wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't you rather have that come from a parent figure who's ready no, and able to discuss it, darker it, themes if it comes from the parents it's not cool but no but with i'm talking about like young kids i'm not talking about a 13 year old like you're never gonna have a conversation with a 13 year old but i'm, I'm saying like, i'm probably not gonna talk to our kid for the entire <laughs> time when they're 13 to like 15 <laughs> <laughs> I think they, they don't. At least I didn't outgrow my sassy phase until I was at least 21. So Someone say you never look forward outgrew to it. a couple of decades of not talking to our children. I, that I think they, I don't know. Again, this is completely hypothetical, but obviously, like I'm not gonna introduce our kids to like insanely dark themes when they're three. We're gonna but... show them Saw, the movie Saw. <laughs> Again, I like I like the serious treatment of these things yes. the respectful treatment of these oh, things. Yeah. so in my opinion i would rather go into sort of a screening mode mm -hmm. with things and go in aware of the conversations that might come out of a movie if we were to show this to our five to seven year old mm -hmm. and be able to give those things a serious conversation should this conversation arise. I'm not saying like we turn off the television and say like, all right, we're going to have a conversation yeah. about midlife crises. <laughs> yeah. But if questions were to result from those things, it would be nice to like point to a movie like Fantastic Mr. Fox that then our kids are like comfortable with. Oh yeah. And say like, remember how Ash wasn't accepted for mm. being different right but then in the end ash is actually celebrated for his differences i think like this is a very intelligent approach to that whereas i think a lot of kids fodder that's out there doesn't give it the serious treatment that yeah. this movie does so that's why i think like as a parent i think this is a great movie to introduce children to serious topics in a, a like in a manageable Oh, yeah. way if mm -hmm. you treat it as a serious topic i think that you know you learn in a in an open-minded way and also an artistic way of having I that think, conversation i think we're in complete agreement about that and also we know the themes the movie is exploring because we've seen it already right well that's the and thing yeah I, i'm like i was just uh, earlier i was just bringing up that hypothetical situation because of like parents going to see this for the first time and maybe being uh, being a little bombarded with the like think just like walking in and being like oh this is gonna be a Disney movie yeah something like that exactly yeah. interesting well yeah I mean I guess that's like always up to the parents to make sure that they have yeah. <laughs> they know what they're walking into not that you can always control that I'm not it, right you exactly like obviously we're kind of going in without a lot of experience yeah. and we should say this movie is PG I'm actually surprised with all the violence that it's not. PG-13, knowing how the MPAA just reacts to that kind of stuff, especially with, like, guns and people shooting guns, mm. whether it be at humans or at animals. Usually that kind of stuff gets PG-13. Well, the funny thing is, too, this is actually one of the first films that was given a PJ rating because of the imagery of smoking uh -huh. beans, mm -hmm. cigarettes, or pipes, Yeah, which is funny. Right. I mean, I don't know. We could have a debate about whether or not that deserves a PG rating or not i don't but at the same time i don't think this is a g oh no film no like it has enough adult topics that i i think it's appropriate but it's just funny that that's like one of the reasons given for yeah. the pg rating i think it switched over to the pg the minute box drugged the blueberries and the <laughs> beagles ate because it's tough i could see like we know that the beagles just passed out but the animation on it, the eyes go back, and then you see a little X. I well, mean, the stars. For okay, the stars. I, I, but I, I could imagine someone like interpreting that as like them yeah. dying. Yeah, yeah, a kid who doesn't, who can't quite follow like the whole. Like, oh, this is just like sleeping. You and know, medication. Th this is such a funny yet bizarre trend in Wes Anderson movies is like violence against animals. <laughs> yeah, uh, of course, this movie is about animals, so it gets a pass, I guess. There is a lot of violence in it. Mm -hmm. But like in Moonrise Kingdom, yeah. a cat dies from getting shot by an arrow. In yeah. Grand Budapest, his uh, next film, uh, Willem Dafoe picks up Jeff Goldblum's cat and just throws the cat out of the window. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's a jarring moment that is both funny but extremely serious at the same time. Actually, one of my favorite running jokes in all of Wes Anderson's films is in The Life Aquatic, where Steve Zazu just, like, fucking hates the dolphins and can't be bothered with, like, yeah. their, like, quote-unquote bullshit <laughs> when they're just, like, 
they're just trying to do their job and he's like these fucking animals i have no idea what they're doing right (laughs) yeah but it is it is actually kind of a weird like don't shoot them they are unpaid interns and that another line um i did so that so so the hipsters don't come after you it's steve zizu but also in that film jeff goldblum a different character takes a rolled up newspaper and hits the three-legged dog (laughs) bad dog and the dog ends up being stranded on the island that's yeah what is it with wes anderson and like like dogs and cats yeah he like hates not like a red flag for people like someone should check up start killing humans on on wes (laughs) Um, check wes's closet or basement there might be some skeletons (laughs) like actual skeletons no cat skeletons And dogs gross. <laughs> but yeah, the whole third act of the movie, the quote unquote war between the wild animals and the humans, that's all Wes and yeah, I suppose Noah Noah Bombach as well. It is extremely aesthetically only Wes, only you could spot it a mile away. And of course, I, this is also something that is in all of Wes Anderson's films. POV shots of a motorcycle with, mm. with a sidecar next to it. There's always someone riding a motorcycle and you see you know all the angles of them it's like a cutesy little french like beep beep uh (laughs) motorcycle with a sidecar it's in the french dispatch it's in moonrise kingdom it's in grand Grand budapest Budapest. yeah Yeah, it's in this that was the last thing i was expecting to see upon my first watch was to him to get into a checkered (laughs) yes motorcycle and sidecar no less so cute actually i'm glad that you brought this up because this also brings me to the unconventional way that the voice acting was captured yeah because all of it was actually filmed on a farm in connecticut so even the parts where they're on the little motorcycle and sidecar there's literally footage of wes anderson george clooney george clooney and the guy that plays kylie Mm -hmm. just sitting on a motorcycle just kind of like hopping on it there's another scene where fox and i think kylie again are running and there's footage of the boom holder basically like turning with George Clooney running in a circle. So it literally sounds like he's running. He's mm-hmm. out of breath. I think that really lends this uh, another layer of this like organic outdoor sound. Yeah. With all of the wind and the crickets and the water. and the, Oh, and the other thing too that I thought was so funny, there's some footage of them talking through, I think, the breakfast scene. Mm. And there's that point where George Clooney yanks a plate and then literally devours like three pieces of toast. He, he literally does that like <laughs> sound with a piece of toast. It's just so fun. I just, I think this is such a beautiful kinetic way of capturing the sound. And a lot of times animation is not captured like that. It's done in sound stages right. for like a clean, crisp recording. Right, yeah. Whereas this is completely different. Yeah, like in most settings, an actor will come in for a week or a weekend into a, a nice cozy studio and record their lines a few times and then that's it. That's another good point. A lot of times voice acting is captured separately. Yes. Even even if the actors are in most one times. Yeah, even if the actors are in one building, they're in sound booths. They're not really interacting right. as organically as this, but this was captured with like a single microphone in some cases with everyone sitting almost like blocked in the way that the film is because yeah. they wanted to have that like natural space between them. I just love that. For I think sure. that's really really creative and gives it this extra layer of grit, like yeah. outdoor grit. Adds authenticity, but it also allows the actors to really feel out i guess the space but also their lines that's something that voice actors rarely get to do or at least celebrity when celebrities are cast to go on Uh, voice actors are professionals they know how to do their job but sometimes celebrities don't and this is a case where wes anderson is adding this element for the actors to improve both their performances but also the the sound the literal sound of the movie itself so I honestly feel like George Clooney would, is such a cool guy. Like, I just, from all the interviews that I've watched with him, he just seems like such a cool guy. Yeah. I feel like hanging out with him in a mall would be just the coolest, you know? Yeah. I guess that also, one of the last things that I had, I have couple wrap-up things. One of the things I wanted to say was that there's been a lot of criticism, oddly, about how Wes Anderson directed this film, because he wasn't on site a lot. He lives in Paris, and a of lot of times... Of course he lives in Paris. Fucking course he lives in Paris. Yeah, like, anyway, so he actually wasn't on site a lot. 
he recorded a lot of himself acting and a lot of like close-ups so the animators could see how his face was moving. And then he would send those videos to the art department and say like, this is mm. what I want. And then they would send clips to him and he would say like, I like this, I don't like this. And I guess apparently a lot of people think that that's like, he shouldn't get a full directing credit for that, mm. which I think is absolute bullshit because I feel like that's a little ableist. Like, <laughs> and also in a post-COVID world, I mean, like yeah. how were, how do you think that we would be a working society these days? I think it's it's interesting to see that criticism now because again, like it's just such such an outdated idea that like people can't direct or do right. things without just like being on site. Yeah. I mean, so it's it's interesting to just read that criticism. Like all the movies of, that came out in 2021 were pretty directed much. via Zoom. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, it's just a little silly. I also have, a, I actually came with a couple of fun facts, if you're ready. Do you Ooh. have anything to... No, well, normally I'm the fun fact guy, the movie guy. You're supposed to be the book expert, Missy. I know, I should stay in my lane. But <laughs> because I've loved this movie for so long, I feel like I've had a lot of times to just dig into this mm -hmm. piece for whatever reason. I just love this movie. I just love it. So anyway, some fun facts that I already knew and I also found out while doing some research is that this is the second animated feature to enter the Criterion Collection after Akira. Hell yeah. So Akira was number one to enter the Criterion Collection. We gotta get that Criterion but now that we I think do. about it. We do. Yeah, we do. Although that Blu-ray was really expensive. It was like 20 bucks. Or 24? It's like when we bought it. <laughs> <laughs> Love Akira. So I thought that was interesting because we like both of those. Mm -hmm. The second fun fact is that the choir that sang the Bogus Buns and Bean, one fat, one short, one lean, that whole thing, uh -huh. which is also very Wes Anderson. Yeah. <laughs> that oh, style. Yeah. They recorded at Abbey Road Studios, which should ring a bell for anyone who likes the Beatles. They recorded there. The Who? <laughs> Not the Who, the Beatles. No, I'm saying. But I'm. <laughs> So that's a fun fact in itself. However, what I think is also very interesting is that a long time ago in one of those movie fun fact listicles, I came across the fact that the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory movie had songs also recorded at Abbey Road, which is another Roald Dahl source mm -hmm. material. So I just thought that was kind of interesting that both of these had recorded there. Yeah. I don't think there is a specific plan for that, but I just like happened to put those two fun facts together. Um, the other thing that I thought was really fun was that the script was developed at Gypsy House in Buckinghamshire in England, which is Roald Dahl's home. Like that's, that's where oh. he lived and eventually died. Cool. So I thought it was kind of fun that they went there to develop the script. I think that's it. I think those were my fun facts. I have one. Okay. <laughs> The line in the movie where after Mr. Fox loses his tail and Mr. Bean says, got the tail, but missed the fox. That was taken straight from the book. Yeah, that's so. such a good line. Man, I guess, yeah, that's it for me. You, you said a lot of the fun facts that I had, but you also came up with some new ones. So well done. You won this round, but next time. This is I will one of destroy my, you. <laughs> this is one of my favorite movies. So it no, thank sense. you for finally showing it to me. I mean, oh, what? Yeah. What a shame! Wow, wow, wow! What a shame! <laughs> wow, wow, wow! <laughs> what a shame for taking so long to watch this movie. But yeah, I'm all in on this movie. It's funny. It's heartfelt. Fast paced. Doesn't waste any time. It's perfectly Wes Anderson. The mise en scene mm. uh, in every scene is incredible. That's Anderson's M.O. Down to the tiniest details. Like, yeah. Something that I just adore. It's literally in one of the first shots of the movie. The book that's held up mm. that shows that it's like based on the Roald Dahl book <laughs> <laughs> shows the illustrated version by Donald Chafin. So it means that they're educated. And it also has a little library sticker on the bottom left hand corner wow. attention to detail i love that because it also shows what a big role libraries have in children's lives uh -huh. i just love that just yeah. the tiniest little details in here the art department slam dunk yeah it, thank you for your hard work because thank you for your service my goodness it, it the art department was not nominated for this film stop motion films are rarely I don't think a stop motion film has ever been nominated for that's uh, art direction or dumb. Pr production. That's straight up design. dumb. You know, I don't know if, if like a lot of people know this, but I, when I was in high school, around the time that this came out, I was really into, well, it was sparked by my love for Ardmon's 
Wallace and Gromit. Grew up watching those. But I always wanted to be a claymation animator. And I did a lot of sculpting when I was a kid because I was really inspired by the work that people do on stuff like this. And obviously that never panned out. But <laughs> if I had to choose like a dream job, I think working on films like this or working for a production company like Ardman would be insane. Like that's my number one missed opportunity <laughs> career yeah. career path. My dream job, Lobster Fisherman in Maine. So yeah, mean. this movie was not nominated for two Academy Awards Best Score for Alexander Desplat and Best Animated Feature. It lost both those that deserved to be nominated for more. I what, think What animated film won in 2009? Uh, this would be 10. 10 whatever. Up. Uh, fine. And and okay. Michael Giacchino also won uh, Best Score for that movie, so. Uh, okay, that's memorable. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, final rating for the book. It's at a solid two for me. I think it's okay, but it's really even out of Roald Dahl's novels. I don't yeah. think it's number one for me. Yeah, it's it's just like you're reaching not a for Willy Wonka or Matilda. Matilda, yeah, Matilda's so good. Or I watched James and the Giant Peach on repeat as a kid. Okay, too. also you're reaching for those three, but they're all dark and they're all fun right. in different ways. Oh, The Witches, that's another one that's like a classic, mm. but I've never read that. Anyway, uh, yeah, sitting at a solid two for me. I'm... It feels unfinished. That's why. Yeah. It just doesn't feel like it has the proper denouement for me. I'm in agreement. And also, Good. Siri, what's define denouement? Oh, please. You're a film major. Don't tell me you don't know what denouement means. Oh, I totally I totally know. <laughs> no, I'm just going to look on. it up just, just for the audience. You're just being silly. I totally know. You're the being film, silly. let me guess, one out of four. Thanks for listening. <laughs> the film is lit. We'll be back next week. No, we're both four to four, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, four to four. Uh, and yeah. no surprise I'm there. Gonna, I'm going to make myself another hot toddy after we're done because that was just delicious. And it's about 60 degrees outside in LA, so it's freezing here. Yeah. <laughs> just kidding. We need a jacket and a hat. <laughs> and some socks. And yeah. A hot toddy. We might perish from frostbite. So if you don't hear from us in a week, <laughs> we're we're frozen in our apartment. People are gonna freak out. We're gonna like miss our Tuesday deadline. Yeah. <laughs> They're gonna be like, oh shit, they died. All right. Well, thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks. We're taking a little break to record our special Christmas episode. That's right. It's gonna come out right before Christmas Day, our episode on how the Grinch stole Christmas. So that's going to be fun. The Jim Carrey film, live action, not the animated film. Yeah, but so, it's still a bang on classic. Oh, it is a quirky, horny <laughs> mess of, of, a great, of greatness. Oh, yeah. Six uh, o'clock, dinner with myself. I can't cancel that again. Yeah, oh my an God, absolute I can't wait classic for people our age. So yeah. we cannot wait to do that. All right. Thank you for listening, team. And we'll see you on the next one. That was me who did that, not Laura. <laughs> Fake news. All right, bye.